So a couple of thoughts this morning as we carry on with our uh, little bit of a, uh, a detour that's an on-ramp that goes straight up to heaven and back. Uh, you know, part of what we've been tr- trying to do is we continue to, to come back to and descend in this Romans 1 passage as a whole is is really understand what Paul is doing with that passage as it relates to the rest of the book of Romans, which I think we'll see unpacked over time. Um, But then also get ourselves kind of properly ordered to the reality of this wide gate that is described in Scripture, uh, which is is a point of passage if you think about a gate, right? It's a point of passage at which the biblical narrative is there are masses amounts of people that are headed towards this white gate. Massive amounts of them, every one of us included. And there are those by the pure grace of God that are snatched off of that road that leads to that white gate that creates a point of passage of arguably no return, right? This on-ramp is really trying to look at, you know, from where we were redeemed from this wide gate as we just spoke. Uh, So we can look unto whom we have been redeemed by, always with a constant heart of realizing that apart from what he has done and what they have done as our triune God, we would be on that wide road to that wide gate and there would be no way off of it, nor would we want a way off of it. That's, that, that reality understood just helps us exalt our Lord and just love him all the more in our hearts, right? We also talked last week about from where we were redeemed from, and that is clearly in this particular book, The Wrath of God. We were under the wrath of God. And that is an entry point often as you're witnessing to and evangelizing the religious unsaved person because that religious unsaved person can hardly fathom that they were ever under the wrath of God. They were always good, neutral, and now they're getting much better because they're going to church on Sunday and they're doing this and they're doing that, right? I know that from personal experience. But last week we started, and today we'll finish with, and to what are we being redeemed unto, right? And we talked about this 1 Corinthians 15 passage. It's just so beautiful. Um, But I thought about this this morning coming down. What is the supreme attribute of Christ that we get to see all the way throughout the scriptures? the very Christ whom we are to be conformed to, right? Huh? Holiness. Holiness. Manifested in a supreme love for his Father. And a complete trust in the providence of his Father. Every step he made, every movement he made, every single thing he did 
was out of love for the Father, complete trust in the Father, which then manifested itself in perfect obedience to the Father, right? And we are being conformed to that. So think about that, right? Think about your love for the triune God. Think about the areas where we trust and we don't trust, right? Because Jesus' trust of the Father was perfect all the way to the cross, even though the human emotion and the divine understanding of what he was going to take upon himself in the cross shattered the capillaries in his face. He's still not my will, but yours. Right? Isn't that beautiful? That's what we're being conformed to. But the writer of Hebrews talks about the joy that was set before him. And we're going to talk about that joy. And to me, it's almost a contradiction of terms, right? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dominated by Satan. And we were destined for the wrath of God. And they saved us. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we just do come before you, our triune God, the scriptures allows us to see so beautifully each in your wonderful roles within the triune God, but each perfectly and completely God. We just praise you for these truths. We praise you for this time. We praise you for the heart's desire to come together and open up your word and see these beautiful truths. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time that you would open up our hearts to these truths to be fully taken in and then fully poured out. And Lord, we just praise you for what you have done on our behalf. And we praise you in your very precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, I want to just pick up from where we were last week, and we were kind of talked about this tapestry and to what end all these various movements of God throughout the course of humanity uh, are leading us to. But I want to take you back to Colossians 1 and just read 3 through 5 and then 13 and 14, because I think uh, Paul helps us to see this thankfulness to the Father and all that the Lord Jesus Christ does in almost all of his salutations. Um, but Colossians 1, 3 through 5 tells us, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's always invoking the triune God, right? When we pray for you, you see the connection there? Why every one of us who know the Lord have been redeemed by the Lord, regenerate by the Holy Spirit, why are we sitting here? Because of what they have done on our behalf, and we have only them to thank for it, right? And I know we hit that over and over again, but if you're walking through Scripture, you're in that reality all the time. It's right there all the time. So that our praise is going vertical, that our worship is going vertical, not horizontal <laughs> in the worship and the trust of men and princes and all that we're taught about. 
when we pray for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love, here comes the rivers of living water, and the love that you have for all the saints. Won't you be glad, Grady, when that day comes? When the love of all the saints is true and genuine and pure and not all broken up by all the differences that we hold. Right? It's so pervasive. And we'll see how precious the body of Christ is to the triune God. And to think that what we've done with this precious gift is just shattered into a million different pieces and denominations and this and that, right? And as we talked last week, I have no doubt the Lord is going to mend every one of those wounds in his body before we ever can enter the pure, beautiful worship of him as a complete bride. Just like that passage last week talks about. Just let that soak in, particularly as we have differences with our brothers and sisters. Start now with it. And, he, and here, here's where it goes. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And that's what we're going to focus on today, the heavenly view. Verse 13 how did we get here? This is the snatch off of the wide road that leads to the wide gate. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has delivered us. Period end. And transferred us. Literally picked you up, snatched you off, and dropped you onto the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom, in Christ, whom we have redemption, synonymous with the forgiveness of sins. And they are many, aren't they? Right? So we're going to talk this morning and walk through just the earthly hope that Paul just referred to. The heavenly view that we see as this consummation is brought nearer and nearer. And by the way, when John wrote the book of Revelation, how did he start it? The time? It's like way off, don't worry about it? No, it's near. 2,000 years ago. It's near. Be ready for it. Right? Discern the times, for the days are evil. And Paul goes on to say, in 2 Timothy, they're getting more and more evil. This road is getting wider and more belligerent. Right? And as the false church and the professing church, the unregenerate church, gets rattled away, the true church is left right in the crosshairs of all of this, right? We know that from Scripture. Look to heaven when those times come at us. That's what Paul's exhortation is. And we'll see the consummation of the church age, which ushers us right into this age of the millennium. And it's important to have that understood as we go back into Romans and we see this foundation Paul's lay of the absolute corruption of humanity and the world with which they create, right? As I was studying this week and 
we'll probably talk about this a couple of weeks out, but the, the book of Romans is, it kind of lays down this thick, dark cloud in Romans 1, 2, and 3a, right up through Romans 3.20, where we shut our mouths. Every mouth should be shut, right? But then Paul starts these kind of peals of thunder and lightning that go all the way out throughout the book, right? That just give us wondrous hope because verse 321 of Romans starts with, but God. Look what God did, right? Despite all that darkness. And he just begins, and we're going to see some of those beautiful peals of lightning that kind of flash through this book of Romans, right now. Turn with me to Romans 8, 18. And we're going to talk about the earthly hope, the hope we have now, the way we can see this from where we sit in our current sanctification. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, yeah, yeah. You have a tablet. You should have one. Think about Paul. You think he was suffering? Think about his beatings. Think about the times that he was kind of scourged by the Jewish law, 39 lashes. Think about that. I mean, I, I, I've, I've sat on the coastline in Turkey and looked at the mountain range that they had to cross over. And I'm thinking, there's no way I could do that. And Paul was going back and forth, broken, beaten, all the time. The physical sufferings he must have been enduring were all you could imagine. But then the burden that he carries that he reveals in Romans 9 about his beloved Israel. And then the Gentile world that the Lord had entrusted his ministry to. Think of the suffering of that man. Yeah, exactly. Why he always starts with that salutation, right? They saved me to this, and praise be to God for that, right? Now, what is it? What is to be revealed to us? Look at verse 19, just beautiful. We could spend the next month on this alone. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of what? The sons of God. This is what the creation is yearning for. That the revealing of the sons of God, because when the sons of God are revealed, in the context of this passage, it's time. Finally. Finally. It's time. So the whole creation waits with eager longing. And the obvious exhortation admonition, or maybe even rebuke, you, you pick, are we also waiting 
with eager longing? To be done with what this world has become with that curse of the sin? Or are we growing more and more comfortable with this world? I think John sets that up very nicely all throughout his writings. Mr. Black and White, right? If you read the Johannine Corpus. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to, here's one of our words from Romans 1, futility. Think about the seasons. Think about the dead of winter that gives life to this beautiful spring and shows so much hope and then the sizzle of summer comes and just crushes it. And it falls right back into the dead of winter. Unable to bring to fruition, right? As Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. But one day, the creation is going right back with us to the garden. And I think that's exactly what Paul is, is helping us to see here. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, the sovereign God, in hope that the creation itself, he personifies the creation, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there's a distinction between the creation and the children of God. And we are all going to be freed from the bondage that makes us sick, diseased, emotionally unstable, broken. And the creation do all the stuff that it does under a sovereign God. It's all going to be freed from that bondage. That's the picture Paul is stirring us up to. It's beautiful, isn't it? I love the creation. <laughs> I look around and, and I just see this glorious, beautiful creator in everything he's created. And what Paul's telling us is, you have no idea what's coming when all this is freed up from all of the sin cursing that has taken place. It's beautiful, isn't it? Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, right? I think about every earthquake, right, where there's just this going on underneath the surface until one of them just goes, and one flips up and the other one goes down and we shake and shake and buildings fall down. Groaning, just futility. We see it all around us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. And the more you set your mind and you let Scripture fill your mind and your heart on what this beautiful consummation is going to look like, the more you're going to groan <laughs> about the state we're in right now and the more you're going to look up and be thankful that he has redeemed us from all of that right and look at where he goes 
as we wait eagerly, which is much of what Paul spills ink on in 1 Corinthians 15, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Isn't that the whole focus of that passage last week, 1 Corinthians 15? The new body. I know some of us more than others are really looking forward to that new body because <laughs> they're broken and they, they really do break us, right? Very encouraging passage. The redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. There it is. When you were saved, you were kind of saved right into this big, beautiful cradle that has packed into it all these beautiful promises that the God who never breaks a promise keeps. Right? Now hope that is seen is not hope. Be careful of your need for this sign and that sign. That's the problem, right? Trust like the Lord did. For who hopes for what he sees? Okay, I got to lift up out of that or we'll never, we'll never get on to the completion of this study. Look at uh, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. And now I want to give you the heavenly view as this consummation begins to take place. And there's a sequence here that we should spend time with. And Lord willing, when David gets back, we will spend time with this. Because this is one of the great passions he has in his teaching is to just unpack this for us so beautifully. But I'm going to yank you from this earthly view that we have to look forward to, to the heavenly view as it's literally being brought about okay revelation verse chapter 7 verse 9 john says after this i looked and behold which means we're going to a new scene again and you'll see that all the way through that book of revelation a great multitude so again this is this heavenly view of the consummation that's coming about that no one could number what did the disciples ask jesus Lord, are there just a few who are saved? And I think at any given moment, and at certain moments, it, it is very few. But over the cumulative effect of the Lord's work over the course of humanity, this is what you have. And by the way, this is your family who are going to be living in the very place that Jesus went and is right now preparing for us the heavenly commune after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes all peoples and languages the gospel paul is so overwhelmed with in romans standing before the throne and before the lamb all that beautiful, tender, shepherd, lamb language that we talked about two weeks ago. Clothed, this is us, in white robes, finally. Washed clean, right? Because today we confess, repent. We got the robe white, and boy, it doesn't take us long, does it? 
So we repent and we confess and we are sanctified. But there comes a day when the robe is white and it stays pure white, which then allows us to worship the Lord and our triune God, finally, rightly. And that's the scene that you're seeing. Before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. What does that conjure up? The worship, the fake worship for the Lord. Passion week. But very much a part of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And a symbol of salvation. And by the way, the Feast of the Tabernacles will be one of those precious things that will be restarted in the millennial reign. With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's because what you're heading into in the sequence of the book of Revelation is the tribulation period. It's come. It's now. Now it's bound to seven years. Three and a half years of false peace, three and a half years of just pure hell on earth, and then the consummation that we're going to see in a minute comes about. We talked last week, in the last few weeks, about the husband and the bride and how beautifully the triune God refers to the husband and the bride and why that is so important to our triune God. Let me just give you a little bit of insight. The entirety of Romans 1 is about the purity of the covenant between a husband and his wife. And anything that adulterates that Romans 1, 18 through 31 is an offense to God of the highest proportion, and we're about to see why. And it just, yeah, I'll restrain myself. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now look down to verse 16 of Revelation 7. We'll continue on with this heavenly hope. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more, nor the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, and here it comes, will be their shepherd. And there's where all those beautiful promises move from the shepherding he's doing right now and the sweet intimacy of our communion with him through the Spirit will be fully fully realized where he is now shepherding us and we are worshiping the shepherd and the lamb perfectly and that's what the Lord has given John here for us all to see he will guide them to John 7 37 and 38 right springs of living water And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All the tears. The tears of joy that just well up in you when you think about what our God has done. The tears of lost loved ones that you just wish you could save. But just refuse to come to the Lord. The tears of sickness. The tears of death. All of it. This tear, I think, is full of all of that. 
and the Lord will wipe it away. And I, you can only imagine how we then lose sight of all of that. But it is because of the sight of this blessed Savior that just washes it all away. Right? Peace and contentment are now in its fullest form. Amen, Grady. I want to move to Revelation 19 as we go there. Verse 6, the height of worship in heaven in the end of the great tribulation, just before the millennial reign begins and the Lord's undeserved compassion on us is poured out. And I want to pay attention to this, including his beloved Israel. And I want to walk us through that a little bit this morning so that we get the complete picture of what is all bringing it brought about in consummation at this particular point in the end of the tribulation period. And I know we just skipped over a lot, right? But I'm just trying to give you these touchstones of unto what we are being saved. Look at Revelation 19, 6 through 8. And here you're on the backside. And I want to just give you a few thoughts about this. And I'm going to read a little bit from Dr. MacArthur's commentary, paraphrased a little bit. And I want to give you the imagery of the ancient marriage, particularly the Jewish marriage, and continue to build on this understanding of why the covenant of marriage is so supreme to our Lord and how any adulteration of that, which by the way, I know Romans 1 tends to draw us to the homosexual nature of that passage, and it causes us to totally lose sight of just the pure adulteration of modesty, of the body, of the wedding bed. It is every assault on what is confined to the privacy between a husband and a wife. And when you put it that way, you realize that every single place we go, the vast majority of the attire we see, the products that are being sold, the merchandising and the advertising and the commercial is absolutely adulterating every bit of that covenant. With a bit of a try before you buy or look at me, that's the world we're in. So if we think that kind of one to 1.5% of this country or world, depending on how you want to look at it, falls into this homosexual category. Think about how many people fall in just the sexual uh, adulteration of God's covenant, and you'll see the more complete picture Paul is painting for us in Romans 1. It's a very complete picture, and it is an indictment on humanity, and it is the sexualization of a society that flows out of God's restraints being let go. But the object of all of that is the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's why it's so ferociously attacked. In the image of the ancient wedding, there are three distinct stages. First, the betrothal or the engagement when the father chooses the bride. Second is the presentation of the bride, which will be the rapture. 
Third and most significant stage of the wedding was the actual ceremony during which the vows were exchanged and the bride and the groom were presented to the father. That's the ancient wedding tradition. It was given to us because it is precisely what God purposed in the consummation of his son's bride. And I think you'll see that unpacked in these passages and you'll just step back, I hope, and say, what a God we worship and how wondrous it is that he has revealed these things to us in such a wondrous way. Because it is seeing where it's going that helps you understand why we are where we are and how we ought to be. Look at Revelation 9, 6, 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. There it is. That's not to say there isn't much more in God's big events, but this is a beautiful point in the redemption of the bride of Christ. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, every one of us, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's our life right now. The righteous deeds of the saints. Every moment we live, we're participating in the preparation of this fine linen. And it's the linen that makes us ready as a bride to be finally and fully wedded to our groom, right? That's, that's precisely what the Lord is revealing to John in this passage. Now, I mentioned Israel, and it feels like it's a little bit of coming in from left field, and I have to kind of uh, take you to a different place so that we can understand this heavenly view and this height of worship by introducing this mystery of Israel, which is all part of this consummation that's going to take place. And I think you'll see that clearly. Go to Luke 13, 34 and 35. And we'll see Jesus speak to this. And he speaks to it a couple of different times, actually. Luke 13, 34 through 35 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, I want you to pay attention. There are kind of six just extraordinary 
statements that are made in this passage, depending on how you count them. One is, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. There's one. You, Jerusalem, entrusted with all the oracles of God, all of the traditions, all that I have done for you, you stone and you kill those who bring my truth to you. That's message number one in this incredible economy of words that our Lord speaks. Number two, how often, see the heart of the shepherd, the compassion of the shepherd, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And there you see this unexplainable, unreconcilable reality of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Right there. How often I would have gathered you. And you were not willing. Here comes message number four. Behold, your house, note your house, not my house, says the Lord, your house, the one you've made for yourself, your house is forsaken. What is forsaken? Let go. The hedge is down. The restraints are off. And I tell you, you will not see me. The Lord is going away. And they will be in a season to this very day that is literally uncomprehendable when you try to take it all in. I read an 800-page book by a Jewish historian who went into all the historians of the Jewish ages and he captured all of the pogroms that have been held against the Jewish people. And I'll tell you, there's only one reason that people exist right now. It's because God is preserving them. That is the only explanation. Horrendous book. Horrendous truth. And I tell you, you will not see me, but here comes, verse, here comes the sixth point. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to think about Isaiah 53 for a minute. And when you read Isaiah 53, what do you notice about the time at which the people in Isaiah 53 are speaking? Because they're looking back upon the one whom they have pierced. They're looking back and realizing what they have done. And Jesus is telling them, forward, there will come a day when you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The 
Jesus will repeat much of this in Luke 19, 41 through 44, and he will very precisely describe the destruction in 70 AD. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and we'll see the relevance of this when we get into these subsequent passages in a moment. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, now these things took place as examples for us, and he's referring to all that took place with Israel. All of them are an example for the church. And this is in the context of warning. Beware. Don't be arrogant. Right? That we might, desire, we might not desire evil as they did. There's the warning. More of this Israel, Deuteronomy 28, 9, and 10. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you if comes the responsibility. You keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. You see the connection there? Isn't it interesting how God speaks and preserves into a time and a place with people that 100% represents the heart of those people at that very moment and yet vividly and perfectly describe something that is yet to come. These reverberations of Scripture that you see, this is one of them. And they shall be afraid of you, the people, who see the reverence that you have for God because of all that you have done to that God, against that God, and yet the compassion and mercy he's had with the power and might that he has to just smote you. Isaiah 55, 7 and 8. He says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And that's just beautiful language. It says, you have no clue what I'm doing here, do you? <laughs> you can't even imagine the things that I have for you. Because you're so caught up in yourself and your sinful ways. So to kind of bring that from the, the Old Testament right into Israel, go with me to Romans 11, 11. And this is one of these peals of thunder that I just uh, am amazed by. Again, in this, where does Israel fit into this, in this consummation? Romans 11, 11 says, So I ask, did they stumble, being Israel, in order that they might fall? By no means, exclamation point. No way, says Paul. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to you and to me. And to the Gentile, who knew not God. All the oracles were given to Israel. And sadly, Israel's commandment to take it to the world, they did the exact opposite and they kept it all for themselves. 
has come to the Gentile. So as to make Israel what? Jealous. What do you make of that, Jeffrey? We ought to have a love for the Lord and a life that is poured out of that love for the Lord that just makes people look at the church and say, I have to have that. And the Gentile church will do that for Israel. Jump to me with verse 25, Romans 11, 25. We'll continue this. Lest you be wise. Here comes a warning to the church, and I think it is a warning that ought to be loud and clear. Very loud and clear. As the church visible takes for granted the goodness of God in so many ways this very morning as the worship that goes up to him is smoke in his nostrils. This is the warning from Paul to the church. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we could spend weeks talking about all that is packed into the fullness of the Gentiles. But Romans eleven twenty-eight through 32 says this. As regards the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. Because they made themselves enemies of the gospel, the gospel came to you via Paul and many others. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God made a promise to the forefathers of Israel that he will never break. That's the point. That's Paul's point. You have a God who you can completely trust exactly the way our Lord did because he's going to fulfill this promise. For the sake of their forefathers, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Could Paul say it any more strongly? Irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, there's our snatch out of there, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, there's the jealousy, they also may now receive mercy, and they will. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So how does this come together? And we'll wrap up. Look at Revelation 20. Verse 4. And here you see the gathering at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, 
and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not yet received its mark on their foreheads or their heads, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You remember the scene in 1 Corinthians 15 when the bride is complete and then the saints of the millennial reign are complete? So we're moving from one to the other right here in this passage. We're moving from the consummation of the church age, the rapture's taken place, the feast of the wedding, and now the consummation of the tribulation saints and all those who will reign with Christ during the millennial reign will rise, glorified bodies, and be ushered into this millennial reign where the next thousand years there will be a literal reign of Christ with those saints. And even then, there will be redemption taking place. Right? As John David, I think, spoke last week, you, you could have a situation where your grandma who's been witnessing to you for, at that point, 227 years, because we live a long time, passes, which will be rare. And there's a good possibility Grandma is all of a sudden going to be a glorified saint <laughs> during the millennial reign. That's what the Lord has in store next before the final consummation of the eternal let me just read again and we'll close here Revelation 7 verse 17 for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen.